man, as believers, we have so much to be excited about. If you're new here, you might come through these doors and think we're crazy. We're just, we're just passionate about what Jesus is doing in our lives. We believe that he set us free, and he who the sun sets free is free indeed. Amen? Praise God. Praise God. Well, I asked the worship team to, to lead us before we got into the message, and I think that was a perfect song to wake you up, okay? If you weren't awake, now you're awake, all right? Well, maybe we get some more light in the house here. I want to encourage you to grab your note sheet and be prepared. We're continuing today our journey through the book of Acts. And as we look at the early church, here's what we're asking. God, what do you want us to look like? And who do you want us to be uh, as a church? And one of the things that you're going to see very clearly as we continue through the book of Acts is that the church in the book of Acts was a church that was on mission. Okay, the early church was, was a missional church. If you remember back in Acts chapter 1, we talked about how before Jesus ascended into heaven, he, he gave this promise to the apostles, to his followers at that time. He said, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. He didn't say you might. He didn't say there's a good chance. He said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then he says, and you are going to be my witnesses. Again, it's not you might, it's not there's a good chance that you're going to be my witnesses. Now, we understand this today, that the church, that the people of God, we are uh, God's plan A for the world and there is no plan B. You know that today? We've been called to, to be his witnesses. And so Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The early church was a missional church. And I just want to say in the same way, we want to be a missional church. God has called us not just to reach our Jerusalem or Rockland County, right, but to go beyond that even to the ends of the earth. As, as a church, we have made commitments to about 31, 31 missionaries, missions organizations um, who are taking the gospel literally to the ends of the earth. And one of uh, many of these missionaries that we focused on and we partner with are in the 1040 window. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's a, it's a rectangular area. If you can think of the map, all right, uh, of area of North Africa, a lot of the Middle East and Asia between 10 degrees and 40 degrees north of, of the equator, okay? This area is often called the resistance belt because it includes the majority of the world's Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. Now, most of the people, if you can believe this, in this area are still waiting to hear the gospel message for the very first time. And so we want to partner with missionaries who are saying we'll go there. Last week you heard a report from Jason and Myra who are focused in on this area. And so on the second Sunday of every month we take a missions offering. And as the ushers prepare to receive that today, i got to say I love this offering because none of it stays in the house, okay? None of it goes to pay the bills or, or any needs here. All of it goes out to our missionaries. All of it goes out to see the kingdom of God go forward. And so if we're going to be a missional church, we, uh, we need to uh, invest in missions, right? And so before the message, we're going to give you an opportunity to give uh, in just a moment. Uh, I know I encourage many of you at the beginning of the year to think about what you could do regularly towards missions. And whatever the amount is that God would lay on your heart, I want to encourage you, if you can commit to giving uh, every second Sunday on a regular basis, I guarantee you God will give you more of a heart for the world. Amen. We want to be uh, a people that understand God's heart for the world. And so uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to give. You can always give uh, to missions. You can designate a gift through push pay as well. But I'm going to pray for this offering and then also just pray that God would speak to us through his word today. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Uh, thank you so much 
Lord God, for, Lord, the privilege that you give us, Lord, to, to link arms with missionaries around the world. I think today of uh, Kevin and Santa, too, that are there in Tanzania amongst what was an unreached people group where now they're seeing uh, lives surrendered to you. Lord, we pray for all of our missionaries. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would encourage them today, that you would strengthen them today. Lord, may they never lack the resources that they need to carry out the mission that you've called them to. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to stir in each one of our hearts, Lord God, uh, that we would be a, a church that's on mission, that we would understand, Lord Jesus, what you've called us to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We thank you. Lord, that we can see that happen in our lifetime, Lord God, that we can see every nation and tr tongue and tribe reached with the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we pray to your, as we look to your word today, we pray, Lord God, you give us hearts of expectation, Lord, that we would hear you speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. I want to encourage you once again as we uh, spend time as a church in the book of Acts to be reading through this great book. It's known as the Acts of the Apostles. It could just as easily be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit, right? Because we see very clearly how the Holy Spirit moved through the early church. And so if you haven't been reading in the book of Acts, it's going to be really easy to catch up with us because we're still in chapter two, okay? Remember, I told you, we're going to be here for a while, all right? Um, you know, the longer I spend in ministry, the more I love this idea of systematically going through books of the Bible, okay? Because if I just preach topically, I can tell you there are passages that I would go to again and again that I'd love to go to, but I want us as a church to have an understanding of the whole of Scripture. And so as we journey through books like this, I know um, that there are going to be times when we come to some challenging passages. I also know that there are going to be some times when we come to uh, some very familiar passages that we may just overlook, right, because we've heard them before. And this is one of those passages. And so Acts chapter 2, uh, the very end of this passage, really on Pentecost. And so just a little review for you. Remember in Acts chapter 1, before Jesus uh, ascends into heaven, he's meeting with his disciples over a period of 40 days, and he's teaching them all about the kingdom of God. He's taking them back to the Old Testament. He's taking them back to the Psalms, and he's saying, look, this is what these prophecies were really talking about. And so in the midst of all that, the disciples ask this question. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says very clearly, it's not for you to know the times or the authority, right, that the Father has set by his own authority, right? And here's the promise again, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says this, and then he ascends into heaven right before their eyes, and they're standing there looking up at the clouds, right, when the angels appear to them and they say, why are you looking at the clouds? This Jesus, he's going to come back in the same way that you saw him ascend, right? And in other words, don't keep looking up at the heavens, don't keep looking up at the sky, it's time to be about the Father's business. And so they go to Jerusalem and they wait. Remember, this is what Jesus told them, go and wait. And so they're gathered together, these 120, they are all in one accord, and they're devoting themselves to prayer, and then the day of Pentecost arrives. Remember, Pentecost means 50. This is 50 days after Passover, and there's this huge feast that's taking place in Jerusalem. And so the population of Jerusalem at that time probably swelled from about 100,000 to about a million people uh, during this festival, during this feast. And it is at this time that the Holy Spirit falls on the church. 
Remember when we talked about the Holy Spirit, we said how in the past, in the Old Testament, there were times and seasons where people were anointed with the Holy Spirit, but it was usually for a time and it was usually for a specific purpose. But then on the day of Pentecost, when the the presence of God comes, the Holy Spirit fills the room. There's not only the sound of, of a wind from heaven, but there is divided tongues of fire. And the fire represents the presence of God. And, and we see in this moment divided tongues of fire over each and every individual. And understand, we, we talked about this, right? This is a, a really a turning point in history. Because no longer is the Holy Spirit given to someone for a time and for a specific purpose, but now the Holy Spirit actually resides in each and every believer. The law of the Lord is no longer just written on tablets of stone. It's now written on hearts of flesh. And so in this moment, on the day of Pentecost, there is this supernatural manifestation of the Holy Spirit. There's, again, the sound of wind from heaven. There are divided tongues of fire that rest on each individual. And finally, they begin to declare in other languages the wonders of God. They begin to declare in languages that they did not know the wonders of God. Again, this is a supernatural manifestation of the power and the presence of God. And remember, again, the population had swollen for this great feast. There were people from Mesopotamia and Egypt and Libya, right? Many had traveled many hundreds of miles to Jerusalem for this feast. They are Jewish people or converts to Judaism. And all of a sudden, they hear the wonders of God being proclaimed in their own language by a bunch of Galileans. And they say, wow, right? What is this? And then Peter stands up with it with a new boldness, certainly a boldness uh, that comes from the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and he preaches a salvation message. This is the first altar call that we see uh, in history, right? And it's amazing because Peter's so bold, he doesn't hold back anything. He says to the people, you crucified Jesus, but God raised him up from the dead. And then he goes back into the Old Testament, and he goes back into the Psalms, and he probably begins to declare some of the things that Jesus had taught him and the other disciples during those 40 days. And as he preaches, there is this release of energy. The book of Acts tells us what that release of energy was. Verse 37, now when they heard this, it says they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart by the Spirit of God. What does it mean to be cut to the heart, right? How does that happen? Well, they're cut by the truth uh, of Christ and by the death of Christ. They're cut by the truth, the understanding of that reality. Verse 32 says, this Jesus, Peter says, this Jesus God raised up and that all of us are witnesses to it. You see, he says, I saw it. We, we've seen it. We, all of us, we're witnesses to what Jesus has done, right? Understand, Peter doesn't simply declare Jesus, he proves him. See, when you get cut to the heart, you realize, man, something, this, this might actually be true, right? And there's reasons for this. Understand, Peter's not simply saying, hey, guys, I know this is just a leap in the dark. I can't prove it to you, but just trust me on this, right? He he says, we are witnesses to the resurrection. Understand, the last people to believe a claim like this would be the Jewish people. Many Jews did not even believe in the resurrection. Pastor Floyd showed that last week, right? It was the Sadducees that didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were Sadducee. I love that, right? They they also uh, did not believe that the infinite God could become a person, take on human form, and and therefore only a few witnesses would not have been enough. And so Jesus comes and he appears to hundreds of people at different times. It's it's a matter of public record, right? If you want to investigate, take some time to investigate and you'll see. It's a matter of public record. 
when, when Paul was before Festus, he, Festus basically says to the Apostle Paul, well, you're out of your mind. <laughs> Paul, all this learning is, is, is driving you mad. And Paul says, I'm not out of my mind, right? He says, I'm speaking true and rational words for the king knows about these things. How does the king know about these things? Because Paul wasn't the only one saying it, right? And, and, and he says, so to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul appeals to these witnesses. He, he says, you know these things, right? Everybody's talking about what happened with Jesus. Understand, unless it was a public record, so many could not have been cut to the heart and made to think. Verse 36, he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, again, they were cut to the hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? The phrase, you crucified him, understand it, cut them to their hearts. They didn't get defensive. They said, you know what? He's right. You see, whenever the Holy Spirit convicts you, you'll realize it was you that nailed Jesus to the cross, right? It was John Newton who said, my, my conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Peter knew this was true of him, right? I mean, he denied Jesus three times. Understand this. The first sign of revival is a realization. The, the first step in revival and being cut to the heart is to realize our sin, is to realize the judgment of God, the punishment of God, the, you could call it the justice love of God. And here's the reality. The church today is not much interested in that today. And yet they're not worried about the character lie. We see sin sometimes primarily as breaking God's heart. Well, I don't want to break God's heart. But are we cut to the heart about sin? Are we just saying, well, I don't want to break God's heart? Or does sin begin to cut our heart, right? How do we know? What are the results of being cut to the heart? It's a response like this, brothers, what shall we do? What must I do, right? And Peter says, repent and be baptized and receive the forgiveness of sins. Understand, true forgiveness provides complete freedom of conscience. The one who uh, convicts the Holy Spirit is also the one who comforts. Do you know that? So the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, but when we uh, receive forgiveness, he also comes and he comforts us. And, and you understand this. When conviction comes, we understand, man, we nailed Jesus to the cross. But why was he up there? He's up there to save us. There is a comfort, actually, in knowing that you crucified him. In Exodus, it was the cleft of the rock that hid Moses, right? And I want to tell you today, we are hidden in the cleft of the rock, and the rock is Christ himself. And so... When we are cut to the heart, right, and we repent of sin, which means we turn from it, what we receive from God is actually freedom, freedom from the power of sin. It's amazing because our world thinks that the only way to deal with temptation today is to give into it. The world would tell you if you struggle with pornography, well, that's only natural, and, and so just give into it, but just keep it secret. Don't let anybody know about it, right? And it, it, for those that are struggling with sexual identity, they say today, you've got to be true to how you feel. Even to the point where they'll say you've got to change your body to suit how you feel. If you struggle with drug addiction, now there are safe places in New York City to do drugs, as if drugs are ever going to be safe. 
But when you make a destructive behavior, listen to this, when we understand sin nature, it's this, if you make a destructive behavior more safe, you only encourage a destructive behavior. And hear me, giving in to sin never leads to freedom, it only leads to more bondage. Sin will always take you further than you want to go, and it will always cost you more than you want to pay. But when you come to Christ, and here's why we were dancing this morning, when you come to Christ, you understand there is true freedom, amen? There is true freedom. You are baptized into new life. Paul says this in Romans uh, 6 verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, here's why, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. Amen? And he says this, We know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Amen? We've died to that. That's the old self. And so now we, we walk differently. We, we live differently. Pastor Floyd said last week there's this artisan well that's flowing out of our lives. We, we no longer say, well, I need to obey Jesus so he won't reject me. But we say, I, I need to obey because I know he won't reject me, right? I know what he's already done for me. And so the Holy Spirit comes and allows us to live for God and not for sin. You see, these people are cut to the heart, and they say, what shall we do? In other words, we'll do, we'll do anything, right? I want to encourage you today. Take all of the conditions off of your obedience to Jesus Christ. Don't say this morning, I, well, I'll obey if it goes well. <laughs> I'll obey if, if, he, if he does this, then... Then I'll begin to walk in obedience. Listen, either he is the master and you are the servant, or you're the master and he's the servant. Which is it today? If you've been cut to the heart, if you've been convicted of sin in your own life, then you get rid of all conditions. About 3,000 were added to the church that day. They didn't sign a membership role. They, they weren't church transfers. We know that for sure. This was the first church, right? They were convicted of their sin and they were presented with the freeing power of the gospel. If you're here today and you haven't received that forgiveness, I want to encourage you, receive it. Turn, turn from your sin. Repent. Be baptized. Walk in this newness of life. But also for those of us who are believers, you have to ask the question, are you still letting the Holy Spirit cut you today? <laughs> are you still letting him do surgery on your hearts? Understand, the knife he wields is not the blade of a thief that cuts to hurt. It's the blade of a surgeon, right, that cuts us to heal us. And so on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 are convicted of their sin. They trust Jesus for salvation, and they are baptized. What a glorious beginning for the church. And yet at the same time, I want you to imagine for a moment the tension that must have been there in Jerusalem. After all, it was just 50 days before this that Jesus had been crucified at the insistence of the rulers of the Jewish people, and the crowd was in agreement, right? Crucify him. And now here we are 50 days later, and there's this large group that has accepted Jesus as their Messiah and as their Savior. And a good portion of this group is those who have journeyed from outside of Jerusalem and, and even Israel, and they've come to the Feast of Pentecost. They've traveled hundreds of miles. They're 
a long way from home, and now all of a sudden their whole world has been completely turned upside down. These new believers were devoted Jews. How do we know that? Well, you don't travel hundreds of miles into crowded Jerusalem at this time, okay, if you're not a devoted Jew, okay? But here they are. They've accepted the fact that Messiah has come, that he's died for their sins, that he rose from the grave, and that he's ascended into heaven. Now, remember, there are about a million people in Jerusalem at this time at the feast, and so you have 3,000 believers, about that, and 997,000 who don't believe. Understand, for the, for the vast majority in Jerusalem, nothing has changed. In their minds, uh, another supposed Messiah has been executed. But what they don't realize is that this tiny fraction of the population, which is now the church, right, it represents the beginning of the end of temple worship. For these 3,000 converts to Christianity, all of a sudden everything changed. They now see the law is being fulfilled in Christ. They're no longer trying to please God by their obedience to the letter of the law, but instead they have the spirit of the law written on their very hearts. It goes back to Jeremiah 31, 33, right? Now look at verse 41. Here we are in, in Acts chapter 2. It says this, So those who received his word, those who received his word were, what? Baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. If you remember, before Pentecost, the disciples were gathered together, and they devoted themselves to prayer, and they were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And now these new followers, they're devoted to two things, right? To learning the apostles' teaching and to prayer. And so the apostles are, are teaching this large group, and it must have been in the temple, because that's the only place you're going to be able to gather a, a crowd like this, crowd of 3,000. And so picture this. After Pentecost, most of, of the pilgrims return back home, but there's this huge crowd that continues to meet in the temple every day to hear from the disciples. Because here's the reality. Where the Spirit of God is at work, there is a hunger to know more about God. Write that down. There is a hunger, hunger to know more about God. And, and so I can just imagine the eagerness of these new believers as they hear all these stories about what Jesus did and, and what Jesus said, right? They're hearing this for the first time. No way, he did that, really, right? And, and this is one of those moments where you read it and you say, man, imagine what it would have been like to sit there day after day and hear firsthand accounts of what Jesus did and what Jesus said. And you may say today, oh, pastor, I wish I could be taught by the disciples. I want to tell you, here's the reality, you can because their teaching is summed up in the Gospels, <laughs> It's actually in, in the whole New Testament, right, which many of you are holding in your hands right now. The basic teaching of the apostles or the apostles' doctrine was this. It was a belief in God, repentance, accepting the lordship of Jesus Christ, being baptized, yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit, and then growing into the likeness of Christ. Again, understand this. Where the Spirit of God is at work, there is a hunger to know God's word. And so we need to ask ourselves, man, am, am I devoted to the Gospels the way that these believers were devoted to being in the temple and hearing these things firsthand? If you're new to the Lord and you're, you're new in the faith, if I could give you just one place to go, first of all, I'll tell you, go to the Gospel of John. Begin to dig into the Gospel of John, okay? Now, these 3,000, they had a knowledge of the Old Testament, but now they needed to see, again, how the Old Testament was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And so the apostles are teaching them what Jesus had taught them after the resurrection, right? How, how the scripture is fulfilled in Jesus' life. 
They, they were teaching the parables, I'm sure. They were teaching the sayings of Jesus, but more than anything, I'm sure they shared how Jesus' death atoned for their sins so that they could be vessels of the Holy Spirit and that their lives could be lived for the glory of God. And this is, this is what we need to learn as well, right? That Jesus' death has atoned for our sins so that we can now be vessels of the Holy Spirit and that our lives, yes, our lives can be lived for the glory of God. And, and so we need to come to this place where we, I think as we read scripture, we need to interpret our life in terms of what God says about us because we are now united with him. You see, many of us interpret the gospel in terms of where we are in our struggles, right? And so we're struggling with sin, we're struggling with this thing, and we open up the gospels and we interpret the gospels that way rather than where we are because we're actually united with Christ. And can I just say those are two very different perspectives and two very different places. The Apostle Paul becomes so absorbed with this reality of who he is that he says in Galatians 2.20, he says, it's no longer I that live even, right? He says, it's Christ that lives in me. And so here are the apostles, and I'm certain that they're teaching about the second coming, right? I'm certain that they taught that Jesus was coming again and that we as believers ought to live with an expectation of his return I'm sure they taught the great commandment, right, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I'm certain they taught them the great commission, right, to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that Jesus had commanded. And so these 3,000, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. But it tells us that they were also devoted to fellowship. They're devoted to the breaking of bread and prayer. Listen, if you want to go forward in your spiritual life and you want to persevere through the difficulties of life, you need to be in the word, but you also need to be in fellowship with other believers. And you need to be in prayer. And if you neglect any one of those, spiritual growth is going to suffer, okay? Like, these are the basics, okay? And if you neglect the basics, it will cause you to be ineffective. Now, the word fellowship is a very Christian word, right? If you grew up in the church, you heard that word fellowship, and you think potluck, right? You think we're going to have juice and cookies afterwards, and we're going to gather. We used to have a place downstairs called Fellowship Hall, right? Like, that's where you do fellowship, right? But can I tell you the word's much deeper than that? In the Greek, it's actually the word koinonia. It's sometimes translated this way, if you want to write it down, giving or offering. Translated as giving or offering. Understand this, it means more than just small talk, okay? It, it means more than just kind of shooting the breeze after church, if you will. And hear me, there's, there's nothing wrong with small talk. It, it, it's meaningful to you. However, the word of God calls us as the people of God to something deeper. Because we understand this, that we are spiritually strengthened when we share what God is teaching us when we begin to share scripture that has inspired us, when we begin to share lessons that we're learning as we walk through the trials of life. And can I just say that's really the purpose of our community groups, right? Here, we want to encourage you to be in a community group. It's not just a place to kind of casually get to know people, but it's actually a place where we can go deeper together, right? It's amazing because the world around us so often prefers like surface level conversations. You ever notice that, right? Like, we can talk about anything, but let's not talk about God or politics. Why? Because I might disagree with you, and we can't go there, so let's just keep it on a surface level, right? But understand, it's, it's the people of God who have the Spirit of God living in them that all of a sudden begin to desire deeper fellowship, right? There's this desire. I, I want to learn from you. What's God doing? In, what's, what's, he, what's he saying, right? 
And in that, as we begin to testify about what God is doing, we are actually giving of ourselves. We're offering something of ourselves to someone else. We're saying, let me tell you about what Jesus has done in my life. Can I just encourage you with this, right? That's why I encourage you on Sunday mornings. I I say this a lot. Don't rush out of here, right? Don't rush out of here and get to your car and get home. What are you going to do? I mean, when you get home, right? It's just you. But but take some time to fellowship. Take some time to, to say to someone, hey, I haven't seen you for a while. What's God doing in your life? What's he saying? What's he speaking? Or maybe, is there some way that I could pray for you? We need others to grow. And, and we need to share our lives to grow. Fellowship, giving, sharing of our lives with one another, that is koinonia, okay? Proverbs 18.1, I came across this verse this week. I hadn't seen it before. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You isolate yourself, right? You're just seeking what, what you want and you, and you go against sound judgment. You understand this too, the, the early church was also breaking bread together. They were breaking bread together. Many believe that this just refers to communion, and and you could say in one way it does, but they would always take communion at the end of their meals. They would enjoy a a meal together, and and then they would receive communion. And can I just say, you can do the same thing in your homes. Now, for those of you that come from a Catholic background, what I'm about to say may challenge you a little bit, but I want you to know you don't need a pastor or a priest or an elder to take a piece of bread and juice and remember what God has done for you, okay? Okay? You can have communion in your home with your family. You can have other believers in your house, and you say, you know what, let's take some time to remember what Christ has done for us. That's, that's doing life together. Because all of a sudden you say, here's the thing that we really have in common, right? We've got a lot of differences, but here's the thing we really have in common. It's a faith and belief in what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, communion gets down to the real reason for our oneness in this place. And it also addresses our need to to be open to one another as Jesus gave to us. And so I want to encourage you, church, let's be intentional, okay? Let's go deeper in our conversations with other believers in this place and have real fellowship. Again, you might say, how to do that? It's as simple as saying, hey, can you, what's God doing in your life? Tell me what he's saying. Or or to say to somebody, how can I specifically pray for you? Is Is there a need that I can be praying for you for? Remember when the disciples are walking with Jesus, they're with him, and they say, Jesus, we need you to teach us how to pray, (laughs) right? Would you teach us how to pray? Why? Because they saw his prayer life, and they realized we needed to be taught to be more like him. Can I just say, you too can ask the Lord to teach you how to pray, but you also need to set aside time to let him teach you how to pray. And and I love what God's doing here on, on our Tuesday nights, at our Tuesday night prayer gatherings, because a lot of times we, we get into to groups, we spend some time worshiping together, and then we break into small groups, and we, we pray for our church, we pray for our community, we pray for, for needs uh, around the globe, really. We're praying uh, for God's will to be done. And, and, and I truly believe this, that any success that we have as a church, it begins in that prayer meeting. I really do. It, it, really, it begins in that prayer meeting. But one of the things that blesses me as I look around the room on Tuesday nights, it was similar to what we did this morning. We break into these groups, and I, and I see people in groups praying together, right? And, and I know some of those people, they've never prayed out loud before, and now I'm in a group, and I feel like, oh, man, you don't have to pray, but you can begin to listen to other people pray, right? And some people said, man, that was the first time I ever prayed in a group. <laughs> it was the first time I ever prayed out loud. If you want to learn to pray, listen to other people pray. I've shared a resource before, but it's, it's just a great resource, uh, a book called The Valley of Vision, The Valley of Vision. I 
I know you can find it on Amazon. I'm not pushing Amazon, but I know you can find it there, the Valley of Vision. It's, it's a book of Puritan prayers. And some in, in old English, but man, I can't tell you how many times I've read those prayers of other believers and it brought me to tears and it's increased my own prayer life. You see, as the early church is devoted to these essentials of Christian living, here they are. It's the teaching of the apostles, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And here's what they experienced. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. The Greek word for awe can also be translated as fear or reverence. It's the word phobos. It's where we get the word phobia from, right? How, how do you describe awe? Well, I fully believe that this, that we should not be led by our feelings, okay? Sometimes, uh, God's given us our feelings, but we should be led by the word of God, right? The word of God should take priority over our feelings, but I also understand this, that God does give us feelings. The, the word of God even describes God himself as having feelings, feelings of anger and love and disappointment and compassion. I am incredibly grateful that God has compassion on us. And really that word compassion, it means to feel with us. And, and so awe is just this sense of, of wonder and reverence, right? Those are two words I would use to describe awe. It's, it's, it's wonder of God but it's also a reverence for God. And it ought to inspire us, it ought to encourage us, but understand this today, church, there is a responsibility that comes with all. Like, when you see God at work, when you see him doing the supernatural, right, there's signs and wonders that God's doing through the apostles, and all comes upon them, when we have a sense of awe, right, we, we know that there is supernatural power working behind the scenes. I want to encourage you, when you are in awe, don't hesitate to give God glory. Let me say that again. When you are in awe, don't hesitate to give God glory. Because these signs and wonders are done through the apostle for the same reason that they were done through Jesus. The, the signs spoke to the truth of the message. These signs and wonders caught the attention of some people, right? They made them aware, man, God is at work through these people. And I believe that God still uses signs and wonders. We, we see examples of it, especially in cultures that are tied to another religion, right? We hear of miraculous stories in, in the Muslim world, and so often they attest to the truth that the, the missionaries are sharing in that context. At, at the same time, we should not overemphasize just the miraculous, because if we focus on the miracle itself, it can be a distraction because we'll focus on the miraculous and we'll neglect the word of God. Honestly, one of the greatest miracles is the power of the word of God to transform a life. Jesus told a crowd that wanted to see a sign, he said, you're an evil and adulterous generation because you just seek signs. And so understand this this morning, we're not after miracles, but we are after a miracle working God. We're not after signs and wonders, but we believe that, that God is, is a God of wonders. And yes, he still works miracles today. Amen? He still works miracles today. Verse 44 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Now, remember this group of 3,000 believers. Most of them are from other nations. They've made a journey to Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast, and now they're a long way from home. But they only booked the hotel for the weekend, right? And, and now we're here. I only packed for a few days, and now we're here. And they, they say it's, it's necessary that we would stay in Jerusalem because we need to learn from the apostles, but we're not financially prepared to do that. 
And so what was the solution? It was this. It was sacrificial giving. Those who had means in the church gave so that others could be able to stay and learn to sit under the apostles' teaching. And can I just say, when you give to the ministry of Grace Point, you're giving so others can sit and learn, right? You're giving so people can sit and learn the apostles' teaching. Some who were from the surrounding areas even sold their property. Others had possessions. They said, you know what, I could sell that. I don't, I don't, I don't need two cars. I'll sell one, right? There was such a unity in the Holy Spirit that no one considered their possessions to be their own. They accepted the truth. Man, it is certainly more blessed to give than to receive. Now, you need to understand, this was not the rule throughout the first century, but just with this initial group in Jerusalem. We don't know how long this continued, but it probably didn't go much beyond the murder of James, which takes place in Acts chapter 12, because it's at that point that persecution scatters most of the church in Jerusalem. Now, there are some that, that will wrongly try to use these verses to support the idea of socialism or even communism, okay? But can I tell you, this, is, this was not communism, as some claim it to be, okay? The Bible's not telling us here that we need to sell everything we have and we're going to come live on a commune on the church property. That might be fun for a little while, right? But we know this, that people still owned homes. Why? Because they met together and people... So, People still had homes to meet in, right? This was simply the meeting of needs at the direction of the Holy Spirit to these initial disciples so they could return eventually to their homelands and they could take the teaching of the apostles with them. But here's what we still see today. There are times when the Holy Spirit will move in our lives and cause us to act in an unselfish way and provide for others in the family of God. We understand this place, man. We've been blessed to be a blessing, amen? We don't give to get right? We give because God leads us to do it. We should give as the Holy Spirit prompts and as we've determined in our hearts. We, we take time each week here to encourage you in, in your giving. Why? I think even the Apostle Paul did the same. He said, whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly, right? But whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. I, I don't preach very often on giving. I, I'm thankful it hasn't been necessary because I believe this, that if we are in line with God's word, and we teach the word of God, then you're going to understand, man, God's going to supply everything you have need of, right? And you're going to live open-handedly. You're going to live open-handedly. We understand that where God guides us, he provides, amen? And so year after year, your faithful investment in the ministry of this church has seen God provide our needs. And we've been able to give over $130,000 last year in missions that's gone out of this house, Amen. And, and what's that the result of? It's the result of God speaking to your heart, and he's the one that gets the glory for it. Verse 46 says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way back up here as we close. But I want you to understand this. Here's the apostles. They're teaching every day in the temple. Every day in the temple, man, school was in session. And I can only imagine, we're going to see how this progresses as we go through the story. I can only imagine that the priests in the temple are getting increasingly more upset at what they saw was this new sect of Jesus followers called the way. And for the apostles, teaching became a full-time occupation. And, and it was the generosity of those who were wealthier that allowed them to take the time to teach and also provide for those who were learning. And, and understand this, they didn't take that generosity for granted. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. You see, there are some who expect to be provided for. But these apostles realize, man, their sacrifice is being made so that they could, they could teach <laughs> 
what Jesus taught to them. And so as they received their food, they did it with joyful, grateful hearts. Remember today that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, right? It is a mark of a, a true believer. And so yeah, it, it, we see the Holy Spirit's work even in this. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's amazing because these new believers now have a completely different perspective than the rest of the Jews living in the area, right? They had a completely different understanding now of the word of God. They have completely different priorities in their life, and yet they still had favor with all of the people. And I ask myself, why is that? I think it's because they were filled with the Spirit. And again, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? And we know that faith in Jesus Christ, we know this, that at times it's going to cause division because we're going to live differently than the world around us at times. And so there will be times when the world around us is upset with, with our views, right? At the same time, I would say this, who doesn't love joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control? I've heard it said that we as Christians need to be winsome to win some, right? We need to be winsome to win some. I want to tell you, I want to tell you today, if you are overflowing with the fruit of the Spirit, you're going to win more people to Christ, I mean, sure, you can come at them and, and, and tell them of their sin out of this place of, I got a duty, I got to tell you about where you are. But if you share what Jesus has done for you with his love in your heart, then you're going to be much more likely to draw them to Jesus. In those times when we don't have favor with those around us, we need to ask, is it because of the message that I'm preaching or is it the way that I'm preaching it, right? Is it the manner in which I'm presenting it? Listen, there are those who are going to reject the message of the gospel because they simply want to live their own way. They want to be the Lord of their own lives. And we cannot be worried about offending with the truth. It was Thomas Paine who said, he who dares not offend cannot be honest, right? But the truth of the gospel will be an offense to some, but we should never give them a reason to reject the message because our lives are a poor example of that message. Amen. Are you with me today? And so our passage closes with a very encouraging message. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There are all kinds of books out there on, on church growth, all kinds of conferences you can go to. But i got to be honest today, a lot of that went out the window as soon as COVID hit, right? <laughs> like here's the church growth strategy today for COVID season. It's open your church. That's it. Like open your doors and, and hungry people are going to show up. They're going to show up. Here's a simple truth about church growth that we come back to again and again. And this is where we are. And I want us to be focused, church, that if we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, if we devote ourselves to the word of God, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, if we as a church are filled with the spirit of God so that the fruit of the spirit is evident in our lives, we will have favor with others and the Lord will add to his church. God's church growth program is he will bring in the lost. He will even bring in new believers from unbiblical churches because they say, this is a place I can grow in Christ. But the question for us today is will we be like those early believers? Would you stand with me? I want you to think about this for a moment. Will we be like those early believers? Will we devote ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
where we devote ourselves to fellowship with others and make, make sure that's a priority in our lives, to getting to know each other. Maybe today over a meal at Chili's, just say, come on, let's go. Let's go break some bread together. Will we devote ourselves to prayer, to seeking the face of God, to seeking his move in our church? And for each of us individually, the question is, Will we develop an intimacy with God so that the fruit of the Spirit flows from our lives? Will you let the Holy Spirit lead you this week? Because I want to tell you, when we do that, our reach as a church, our reach as individuals will not only grow, but you will be blessed to be a vessel, a vessel of the Holy Spirit. As we close today, let that be your prayer. Let that be your prayer. God, would you make me a person who's devoted to these things? Not just when it's easy, but that I would be devoted to your word. I'd be devoted to fellowship. I would be devoted to...